to rising. Another day, another dollar, but here we are to bring you the news. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. How's it going? It's going well. I have some news from the other Robert in my life. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why don't you lay it on us? Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course, joined Elon Musk for a Twitter Spaces discussion yesterday about his campaign for president. The New York Times characterized the discussion as follows, quote, Robert Kennedy Jr. with Musk pushes right-wing ideas and misinformation. Mr. Kennedy, a long-shot Democratic presidential candidate with surprisingly high polling numbers, said he wanted to close the Mexican border and attributed the rise of mass shootings to pharmaceutical drugs. The Times in particular took issue with Kennedy's characterization of President Biden as a warmonger. Quote, Mr. Kennedy spent nine uninterrupted minutes attacking Mr. Biden as a warmonger and claimed that their party was under the control of the pharmaceutical industry. I think the Democratic Party became the party of war, Mr. Kennedy said. I attribute that directly to President Biden. He added, he has always been in favor of very bellicose, pugnacious, and aggressive foreign policy, and he believes that violence is a legitimate political tool for achieving America's objectives abroad. Hmm, I wonder which part of that was supposed to be misinformation. <laughs> Journalist Glenn Greenwald weighed in on what he called a hit piece by The Times, quote, the New York Times glossary, misinformation, word spoken by a critic of the Democratic Party establishment. Right wing, one who is a critic of the Democratic <laughs> Party establishment. Of course, corporate outlets will attack all Biden opponents, but this New York Times hit piece on RFK Jr. is just dumb. He continued, how dare RFK Jr. characterize Joe Biden, someone who has vehemently supported every U.S. war for decades, was a key Senate advocate of the war in Iraq, and is flooding Ukraine with advanced weaponry, of being a warmonger. Why, this is misinformation. Censor it. Uh, yeah, I, I think Glenn is getting at something very real here, which is that, um, and you know, we'll get into the full range of things that were discussed in this Twitter spaces. There are many points of policy where I, I, I'm not a Democrat, where I disagree very much with where RFK Jr. is coming from, but I'm having a hard time agreeing with this framing by mainstream people, by the New York Times, that he is some uniquely duplicitous liar, the criticisms he's making of the Democratic Party with respect to it, it, how it has changed its, its views on free speech, the mainstream elites, coming out against free speech, being the party, the consensus, the, the group that supports war, that supports neoconservatism, that's all true. That's all a trajectory change yeah. that has taken place over the last 15 years. It's true. Of all the things to pick up and criticize out of that uh, two hours Twitter spaces, it's bizarre that they would hop on that particular bandwagon. I mean, not only did he say a lot of true things about the origin of the war in Ukraine, the provocations of Biden and Biden as VP under uh, uh, Barack Obama in the region. He talked about the way that the Democratic Party became aligned over time with the pharmaceutical industry. He talked about how Obama, to pass uh, Obamacare, had to make this trade-off to get votes on board. And he basically threw the American people under the bus by saying we can't negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry. And at that point, the Democratic Party pivoted to be the party that took more money from the pharmaceutical industry as the Republicans. He showed a really interesting and comprehensive uh, understanding of some of the reasons for bias in the media. He talked about how absurd it is to have a, a general dynamic, you know, military companies advertising during Morning Joe and how that incentive there is not because, mm -hmm. you know, kid, parents prepping their kids for school and watching the news <laughs> are buying defense missiles, but because they want to be able to control the narrative. And the same thing happening in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, there was so much truth in what he said. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do think that 
The format, again, was awkward. There was that uh, maybe 30 minutes of obsequiousness up top where it was basically RFK Jr. Praising interviewing, Musk. <laughs> like interviewing yeah. Musk, yeah. like not the other yeah, way around. Yeah, one point Elon Musk said, okay, I think the people listening probably want to hear more about you and your policy views exactly. and your, your run. Exactly, especially because Musk wasn't a particularly interesting interview, especially even compared to RFK Jr. He's just a much less thoughtful mm -hmm. and articulate person. But there was a lot of... Um, kind of, you know, over-the-top praising, I would, in my subjective opinion, of Elon Musk in the platform as right. a free speech portal. I think he did a really great job talking about the values of free speech and the way the ACLU has failed to hold up the values Absolutely. of his youth that were very accurate. But there was also yeah. a failure to criticize the way well, that I, Twitter has similarly well, betrayed its own but, And I wondered if uh, the, the way RFK Jr. was framing what Elon has done on Twitter as this almost sacrifice Elon has made, right. buying it for $44 billion, yeah. it's only worth like $15 billion now mm -hmm. because of the advertisers leaving it, and him saying, like, you've made this, this true, like, financial hit mm -hmm. to defend free speech. Mm -hmm. And... I, I don't know if Elon sees it that way, right? I think he still aspires to make it a profitable enterprise, right? Not just to, I don't think he planned to just like lose $30 billion to defend free speech. I mean, that's almost, it, it, you know, Twitter is a place for elite discourse. It's not like everyone in the world is on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, maybe it would be, it's a very if you're going to spend $30 billion to just like give it away in order to prop up free speech, I don't know that Twitter was the right even approach to do that, right. but I don't think that's actually what Elon wants and to do. Elon, he wants to build a profitable place where there's less bias and there's more free speech, but this is going to involve kind money. of, comp and make money. It's going to involve compromises that maybe he didn't consider. But he place, had but. to be forced, remember, into buying Twitter because part of the issue was when he looked under the hood, yeah. ostensibly, and saw the subscriber numbers, he didn't think it was going to be profitable or advantageous, yeah, yeah. whatever the reason. I think that's a perfectly legitimate problem to have with the company as you're buying it. But he didn't say, I'm going to do it anyway because I believe in f free speech and justice. He then had to be strong-armed into completing the deal. Moreover, he's just hired this new Twitter CEO, which has gotten a lot of criticism from his supporters because she is from an establishment news organization, and the incentive behind hiring mm -hmm. her seems to be to gen up advertisers again. So there's this dissonance sure. between critiquing advertisers, the nature of these businesses that depend on advertising dollars, the negative influence on speech that the advertisers can have, but also very much trying to still keep them within your wheelhouse and to profit off of that um, st uh, st structure. Now, there are a couple of other parts of this interview that went yeah, let's viral. Get to, let's get to the actual you know, meat of what he said on, uh, on um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, um, guns and mass shooting. So... I, I don't think I, I don't agree with he very strongly linked uh, mass shootings in the country to Prozac. Mm -hmm. So I think it is totally legitimate to criticize um, the over medication of in particular young people that has occurred over the last several decades. You know, we I can look at we can look at self-reported rates of mental health and suicide and uh, attempts uh, among young people. And they have they have not improved over time. They've gotten a lot worse, in fact, over the same time period where there is more young people taking antidepressants and that kind of thing. I think it is perfectly legitimate to question whether um, all of this has been necessarily good for young people, whether there is a desire um, among policymakers or doctors in, you know, in, in coordination with the pharmaceutical industry to just write prescriptions for you know, mood-altering things for young people and say that has this actually done them a lot of good if you look sure. at that. So I, I think that's totally fair. 
I don't think it's quite fair to say that that's the obvious cause of like mass shootings in the country. But the school shootings, like not all of those people were on antidepressants. A lot of them, of course not. Um, and look, his answer was so sort of all that. over the place. He ref he referred to himself as like a like a constitutional absol absolutist. He said, "I'm not going to take guns away because he understands right. what gun culture is and how polarizing right. that would be." But then he said he wants TSA-style airport security for schools. Right. He says, we have to stop the killings in the school. He also says, my family has been personally very much affected by gun violence for obvious reasons. Right. He, you know, so he, he seemed to be, you know, the, the, the California guy in him seemed to come out. Like, I understand, like, it, what it felt like was if I had my druthers, yes, we wouldn't have guns. Mm -hmm. But I understand that people have an investment in the Constitution. I think the constitutional yeah. principles are important, and I understand that gun culture yeah. is important. We that's all fine. I, that is, uh, that I totally, a view that I think right, makes but, sense but as what a he, policy What position. he ended up doing was, and he does this frequently, mm -hmm. He's, he explained what the dividing lines are and what the tension lines are without necessarily offering up a solution. Now, in the conversation about the border, it was a little different. He very much did take a strong stand saying that we need to um, shut down the border. He said in earlier conversations that, mm -hmm. in an earlier interview, I think, uh, with Krista Ball, that he looked to the Israeli model of border patrol as what we should implement in America, which rankled a lot of his left audience, I'm sure, satisfied the more right-leaning audience that was on the Twitter spaces, or at least mm -hmm. invited to speak on the Twitter spaces. Um, but it, it, I think these kinds of interviews are going to very quickly reshape who the constitu who constitutes his particular audience. The less he said, the more he could be more things to all people. But between this, the whole colloquy about um, Israel that we talked about yesterday, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I am I I don't know that those numbers that he's getting right now are going to hold unless he is able to frankly expand the more mm. conservative leaning part of the populace, and whether or not those people are going to be sufficiently concentrated in states with open primaries that can actually vote for him is a really difficult question he's going to have to wrangle with. You it. did see this a little bit in the New York Times uh, piece where they're trying to grapple with—they have to grapple with the fact that he has very impressive numbers, and yes. they, they acknowledge that, and then they don't explain why that is, and they're yes. just kind he's of He's like, a long shot at 20%, 20%, like basically pulling the same as yeah. DeSantis. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, but he, you know, he continues to do the media circle. We're looking forward to interviewing him um, some point on this show in the coming weeks, and we'll continue to talk about his electoral prospects and the whole rest of the gang. More rising right after this. Times is out with a new piece on Ukraine's, quote, thorny history with Nazi imagery in its military. Quote, troops' use of patches bearing Nazi emblems risks fueling Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate. Journalist Glenn Greenwald commented on the piece, tweeting, amazing article from New York Times about the rather uncomfortable fact that photos of Ukrainian soldiers and leading battalions so often include Nazi symbols and flags. For a decade, the Western press warned Ukraine's fighters were dominated by Nazi units. Yeah, this article exploded on the internet yesterday because, frankly, as we well know, for months, viral image after viral image has been circulating of Ukrainian soldiers with various kinds of Nazi symbols on them. There was the incident where um, uh, John Stewart was awarding a medal, medal to someone who ended up having a Nazi tat tattoos. 
it's the, the incidence of this happening in high-profile photos on the front cover of these major newspapers, et cetera, is so bizarre that it leads one to the conclusion that you can't escape that this is not some incidental, accidental, small, marginal number of people in this military force who are openly touting Nazi ideology. But this article feels like the New York Times is finally forced to confront that reality after having published so many <laughs> images of Nazis themselves. And instead of taking it head on, the article itself reads as apologia for what it's trying to describe. Yeah. So people have been ripping this apart. They they um, make they say, well, the Nazi symbol, the swastika symbol was once a Hindu symbol. So maybe these are just Ukrainian Hindus. <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be the implication. They raised the the um, Confederate flag saying, well, so like just like some people in the South say the Confederate flag is just about their mm -hmm. pride in history. Maybe right. some people think that and this was U.S. liberals usually call BS on that argument. Exactly. In every other context, they say, no, 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 no. We don't care. You know why your your whatever twisted logic or rationale you've come up with to defend this imagery. We know what it actually stands for. Um, <laughs> one would think that's the same thing with Nazi imagery. Nope. But because again, liberal Democrat mainstream type people are so bought into the Ukrainian war effort against Russia, you have to look the other way or pretend it means something else and or all that, or, or apply all sorts of greater contextualizing that never happens in, in cases of hate crimes and you know graffiti, of like hate symbols in the US context. No, that's, always, that's the worst thing you can do. There's no further um, exploration of what it means or, well, think of the context. The, the media never does that. Yeah, and the reason is because Putin has been saying that part of the project is to denazify Ukraine and to acknowledge that there are a non-trivial number of Nazis in Ukraine is to them validating Putin's narrative. Now, I would argue that everywhere needs to be denazified. That doesn't necessarily right. mean it justifies an not invasion. Not by an invasion at right. gunpoint. But no. I'm not going to put myself in a position as arguing in favor of Nazification. Like, mm. So another thing the article does is use the fact of Zelensky being Jewish as a counter-argument. You know, how, 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 could, how could his bodyguards be Jewish? How could the people surrounding him wearing swastikas and other kinds of uh, Nazi paraphernalia be, be, be Nazis if they're protecting someone who's Jewish? You don't need a PhD to realize that those things can exist in the same time. They try to explain there. There's something symbols called a totenkampfs, which were apparently used by Nazi con concentration camp guards, um, and they they say, well, it's also a symbol that's used by a musical band. So that's neither here nor there. Admitting that it is a Nazi musical band, they say, you know, it was impossible to make an inference about the wearer or the Ukrainian army based on this patch. That's that was from the Anti Defamation League. Yeah. League's Jay really softballing. You know, I mean, the Anti Defamation <laughs> League. I have never <laughs> seen. They've never met a hate symbol that they would not eagerly denounce before. I'm just saying. Except now, right? There, it's like this plain running. I mean, cover. this is a group that I remember their their surveys and their studies about how because of Trump. Uh, hate, anti-Semitic hate is rampant in American schools. And they had this very, um, the methodology of it, not at all persuasive to me when I looked into it a, a little bit to suggest that anti-Semitic hate bullying incidents were 
rampantly increasing throughout American schools and were explicitly due to Donald Trump's rhetoric. Hmm. Um, and now they're saying that there's an indifference to Yeah, now this they're like, well, it's, it could be offensive to some people. Here, yeah, yeah, Jewish people. Yeah, well, <laughs> the Anti-Defamation, that's what's so toxic about this. The Anti-Defamation League, which ostensibly should be the ones calling out legitimate instances mm -hmm. of anti-Semitism and Nazi ideology like this, are in fact running cover for it because of this broader political project. So in this other paragraph, um, the Times writes, in November, during a meeting with Times reporters near the front line, a Ukrainian press officer wore a Totenkamp variation made by a company called R3ICH, pronounced Reich. He said he did not believe the patch was affiliated with the Nazis. The patch made by the organization called Reich. Oh, I'm sure there's a Reich easy a explanation for it. <laughs> I mean, you know, who among us hasn't? And, and, the, and the article just credulously yeah. takes these statements and just runs with it. There's offers no pushback whatsoever. Moreover, it, it you know, people have pointed out that there's a way that they try to recharacterize um, the Soviet Union's role in defeating the Nazis, suffering more casualties of war than anybody else, as somehow an ambivalent position or something that they shouldn't get all the credit in the world for. Um, and do what some people are describing as pro pro propagating their own kind of Nazi uh, propaganda by saying that when the Nazis invaded Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union, many Ukrainians saw them as liberators. I mean, it's like really, mm -hmm. really galaxy brain well, stuff. Right. Uh, this should be a reminder that, look, we, in other parts of the world, in Europe, they, they have been fighting people, Russians, Germans, Ukrainians, all the peoples of Eastern Europe have, have been, Europe all, all over the entire continent, warfare for hundreds and hundreds of years. There are ethnic conflicts. Sure. There are, there were, used to be religious-based conflicts. There are conflicts going back centuries that, family conflict, things that people still feel something for that we don't necessarily understand because we're somewhere else and they're somewhere else and we can't, you know, force how we feel about things on everyone else. There are conflicts that we can't, that just, like, just can't be solved necessarily easily by the U.S. just saying, you got to stop hating each other, you got to stop fighting. And it's complicated because there are people who are unsavory. I mean, we encounter this in the Middle East. People who are unsavory to us for a lot of reasons, but are they the good guys in this conflict because we hate these people more? And then where does that get us when we arm them and then somebody else ends up with the weapons? And it, it just does, it doesn't turn out well because we should try generally to mind our own business in a foreign policy context is actually what the American people support. Sure, but the, what's happening here is that the New York Times is doing PR, not neutrally saying, hey, maybe we should help Ukraine, but there's some bad folks in the mix, but we should help them on a general, broader general principle. It's running cover for them. I mean, people who are more knowledgeable are pointing out that there are all of these non-ambiguous acts, the reburying of these Galizan um, soldiers, a these uh, soldiers from a, what was apparently a, a, a notorious Nazi unit. A ceremony was done by the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to rebury them just a couple of years ago. These symbols mm -hmm. abound. Um, and these, uh, these folks are being characterized in the book, uh, sorry, in the article, as historic, you know, as historical groups, some of which may have been Nazis, but that wasn't their main bag. And over and over again in the in the article, there is this very explicit effort to 
downplay, acknowledge, but downplay what so many people in social media and in independent news have been reporting on as a real problem for years. And frankly, I think the effect is, the effect is that it makes Ukraine look worse than if the paper had just acknowledged the reality of what's going on in the country at the top. Because mm -hmm. now it looks like a, a, a cover job, and the implication is it's so much worse than just the people who are showing up with the odd badge or tattoo or what have you. Mm -hmm. And again, it's worth noting just the sheer number of incidents that are, are cataloged in the context of this article, much less beyond. Right. It, it's. Uh... <laughs> It clearly goes beyond, like, just there were just three people in three photos that got photographed with Nazi regalia. It, it, the, um, it seems like it's a more significant aspect of the Ukrainian army than uh, readers of The New York Times have previously been led to believe. Yeah. So I am glad to see a little bit of acknowledgment, even if it's kind of, uh, I, I agree with your criticisms of how they framed it, but I think even this article is going to be something of a revelation for a lot of people who only get their information from the New York Times. And be like, what? There's Nazis in the Ukrainian army? Yeah, what is that? Well, that's that? a Putin talking been, point up yeah. until this time. And right. it, a friend of mine noted that a lot of the Ukraine articles don't have comments on them in the New York Times because it was part of like an ongoing news update section that didn't allow oh, comments. This article does allow comments. And when we talked about it yesterday, he pointed out that there were Hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very active comment section of people expressing but frustrations with how this was handled. I always tell you, I always tell you not to read the comments, Brianna. <laughs> well, we'll definitely be reading the comments on this article. Um, we'll have more rising for you right after this. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer will move forward with holding FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. This despite meeting with Wray on Capitol Hill yesterday to view and be briefed on a document allegedly describing crimes committed by President Joe Biden. Comer says Wray still is in violation of his subpoena because he refused to, quote, hand over the unclassified record to the custody of the House Oversight Committee. Now, hearings on this matter are expected to begin Thursday. Comer revealed new details about a highly credible informant who allegedly provided information about then-Vice President Biden's bribery scheme. Let's watch. Today, FBI officials confirmed that the unclassified FBI-generated record has not been disproven and is currently being used in an ongoing investigation. The confidential human source who provided information about then-Vice President Biden being involved in a criminal bribery scheme is a trusted, highly credible informant who has been used by the FBI for over 10 years and has been paid over six figures. Now, Oversight Committee ranking member and Democrat Jamie Raskin also viewed the document in question and pushed back against Comer's characterization. Now, recall that this is under Attorney General William Barr and his hand-picked prosecutor, uh, Mr. Brady, who was a Trump appointee, they were the ones who decided that there was no grounds further based on what this confidential human source uh, reported from um, a, a, a conversation with another person. They decided that there was no grounds to escalate this up the investigative prosecutorial Chain. Remember, what we're talking about here is a confidential human source reporting a conversation with someone else. So what we're, we're talking about is secondhand hearsay. Yeah, right. Again, and I, I said this yesterday, just because they didn't, the Trump people didn't take action on it 
doesn't mean there's no there there. It's fair to bring it up because it might mean that, but it's still worth looking at to see it because, you know, part of the criticism that Trump people have of how things are run is that, well, it's all the, the, the actual bureaucrats who, who do the investigations for the FBI and for other organizations were hostile to Trump and perhaps would be not inclined to pursue something that cast aspersions on Joe Biden just as they slow rolled the Hunter Biden investigation or they didn't want to do it too close to the election. Mm -hmm. And in fact, intelligence officials um, helped persuade social media companies and the media to suppress the story of the laptop. Now, all that said, that doesn't mean there's necessarily something here, but how can we judge for ourselves if we can't look at this document, right? We're just relying on other people's interpretations of what it says. Well. Look, let's parse the respective statements of those two gentlemen for a second. Comer's argument is that the unclassified FBI-generated record has not been disproven. Has not been disproven in the absence of much of anything at all can feel a little like you're asking that someone prove a negative in mm -hmm. order to end the investigation. I would like to see a little bit more maybe some specific statements about what he believes should be followed up on. Compare that to Raskin's statement, which is having found no evidence to corroborate the allegations. Having found no—so if there are allegations made in this document that there is no there's no supporting evidence of at all. Like, if I were to say, you know, I had a scooter accident last week— mm -hmm on 16th Street. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing anywhere to indicate that I had ever checked out a scooter on that day in question, that I had been on 16th Street, that there were no witnesses, there was no uh, camera footage, nothing. Then at a certain point, how do you prove that you need to stop the investigation into whether or not I was lying about having my scooter accident? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I appreciate why conservatives, given the partisan nature of everything, would have reservations about not pursuing the investigation further. But it does seem without more that a willingness to make something public that justifies why there is so much suspicion still on the part of some conservatives, why it is not now them who are trying to politicize this moment. Right. The only way to settle this question is for this document to be made public. As well, I that's a catch-22 that as well, because there's a world where there is not anything that links Joe Biden to a crime, but there could be information that links Hunter Biden to a crime that is uh, politically messy and disadvantageous for other reasons, and that could be why there's an effort to not want it to be public. There's also this question about sources and exposure and those kinds of journalistic concerns that I'm sure weigh on— Well, but this isn't a journalistic—this is a— Like a whistleblower concern. Mm -hmm. I would lean toward just disclosing it, because we can't resolve it any other way unless the public have access to these documents. I mean, these are highly partisan on both sides, government yeah. officials giving you their impressions and interpretations, conflicting interpretations and impressions of government documents that you can't see. So at, at some point, I, like, I, yeah, I don't trust necessarily James Comer or Jamie Raskin here, because Jamie Raskin is just interested in covering for the Biden administration, yeah. and Comer is 
interested in doing whatever he can to make Biden look bad. It so is, I can't tell if there's anything to this unless the public are allowed to view the documents, which they should almost always be allowed to do, absent very serious national security concerns or I, perhaps breaking the classified. privacy of a, of a private American citizen. Yeah, the, the documents are not classified, right. boy, period. So, that, so it's Christopher Ray's opinion that you can't see it, really. Right, which is why Republicans are <laughs> moving interest forward. whose interest is that? That's, and, you know, his interest. And that's why Republicans are moving forward yeah. with holding uh, Ray in contempt of Congress, the FBI has issued statements saying that they don't think that is that is necessary, that that is in turn a political prosecution, right. that there's no, no evidence right, that warrants that. because let's not that. make the mistake of thinking, well, Comer is political, Jamie Raskin is political, but somehow Christopher Wray and the FBI are non-political. They are very, very political. They are mu very much participants in this, and they're looking out for the agency's best interest, the best interest of specific employees, and I don't, I don't trust them any more than the political figures. In some ways, I trust them less than the political figures, because the political figures are somewhat more accountable to democratic institutions and processes and voters than, you know, the, the, the faceless bureaucrats yeah. at the FBI. Well, what do you make of the fact that the allegations first came through uh, the Trump administration, the allegation, this is from the New York Times, the allegation contained in the document was reviewed by the FBI at the time while Trump was in office and was found not to be supported by the facts, and the investigation was subsequently dropped with the Trump Justice Department's sign-off, according to people familiar with the investigation. At that point, no one has more of a political interest or otherwise in nailing Joe Biden on this sort of a thing. I mean, sure, but is that dispositive to you? Or no, I mean, tons of people. I mean, this is this does not speak well of Trump's control of his own administration. But tons of federal employees during during the Trump administration were like working to suppress pro-Trump statements on social media. Right? It's it, the, the whole criticism of what's going on is that he, the people weren't actually working in service of Trump, they were actually working to undermine Trump. He didn't have a very, you know, he in fact put people in who were contrary to his agenda because he was very sloppy and very careless about but, this whole but Robbie, thing. But, Robbie, I understand that argument. You know, one person is never aware of everything, and mm -hmm. especially if you're not the best manager and things can fall through the cracks. But I would expect that a potential smoking gun about Joe Biden's allegedly criminal behavior would be a priority in the Trump administration, something that he did try to shepherd through closely. This is something that um, Giuliani is shepherding through this whole process, someone who is, for better or for worse, seemingly relatively close to Trump and who has his, who had at one time his ear. And a complete moron. And so, and a complete moron. But we're, are, we, are we arguing that Giuliani got this information, brought it to the Justice Department, was shepherding it through, and then it was dropped? inappropriately because of a biased FBI, and at that time, Trump, Giuliani, none of them wanted to do anything to revive the claim. I mean, I'm not trying to play, you know, 4D chess here. If there's nothing to it, there's nothing to it. Yeah. But we can't make that determination unless we see the document. I, I think, so that, I think that that's fair. Got and to see it. I, and maybe, maybe the pressure of trying to uh, hold Christopher Wray in contempt will lead to some change in decision-making on that. Uh, but until then, we'll keep our eye on this story, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. A landmark study published in the UK finds that the benefits of widespread pandemic lockdowns amounted to, quote, a drop in the bucket compared to the cost. Now, researchers say draconian measures taken in the spring of 2020 had, quote, negligible impact on COVID mortality compared with lighter touch countries 
That's according to the Telegraph's review of this study. Now, scientists at John Hopkins and Lund University conducted a meta-analysis of almost 20,000 studies on the effectiveness of lockdown measures and found that in England and Wales, lockdown saved as few as 1,700 lives in all. By comparison, the region saw around 11,000 COVID deaths per week at the pandemic's height. This comes just as new peer-reviewed commentary in the Journal of, Can of the Canadian Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry argues that studies highlighting the harms of school closures on kids and teens' mental health have been overblown and overemphasized. So, so that's let's talk about the first—go oh, ahead. Sure, sorry. go ahead. Well, let's just talk about the first one first, and we'll get to that. Um, so interestingly, so they're not they're not saying that like mitigation efforts didn't work at all. But what they're saying is, when compared, like comparing the UK to Sweden, with Sweden there was less like government imposed mitigation efforts, but people took mitigation took precautions anyway. Many people stayed home. They didn't need to be forced into it by the government. What they're saying is that the the government doing it didn't add a lot of good beyond what people reasonably decided to do on their own. And I think that, so some people might say, well, that's an academic difference. But I think it is an important difference because, you know, giving the government, the, it, like if we can trust people generally, broadly, not everyone, but to do the right thing, that's better than the government forcing you because you know, the government having that power could misuse it in some future catastrophe, could claim more power for itself could force you to do things that are totally unnecessary at different times. Again, I always bring up the TSA example, how awful plane travel is and totally divorced from any safety rationale whatsoever. So we don't want to just give the government more power willy-nilly. And if this shows that it, it, it was not an added benefit, really, that is a powerful argument for not allowing those things. Right. That's a useful clarification, because it's not saying that the mitigation measures don't work. No. It's saying that some countries were able to incentivize people to take those mitigation measures, or because of a higher sense of social cohesion or whatever it is, they were more willing to just do it to protect their fellow citizens than we have been in America, which goes along with something I've been saying throughout, which is that I do wish there had been more carrots than sticks. So much of this conversation about COVID mitigation measures has been, are you for or against? Very little about how to incentivize people to actually behave correctly or behave in a way that's in line with the public health benefit. Mm -hmm. And the as much as there's been so much criticism of China and lockdowns, et cetera, one aspect of it that it gets under-discussed is the ways in which it was made easier for people to stay home, having grocery deliveries, um, not being concerned about uh, risk of employment, uh, uh, risk of losing insurance, those kinds of things in certain countries can make it a lot easier for people to be compliant than they have been in the United States of America, where we decided to instead kind of offer some fake superficial valor for essential workers while offering them very little in the way of being able to protect themselves. Now, I, mean, I, th I think that's true in some of our European peer countries. I'm sure it's true in some cases in China, although, I mean, there was also a lot of reporting on people stranded in various parts of China during outbreaks or, like, unable to get out because it was so stringent and so at gunpoint that sometimes stranded without food or without supplies and away from family because it would the lockdown would descend on yeah, an area I arbitrarily. I yeah, I, this, yeah, I'm not the PR rep for China. The point is that there are clearly interventions that various countries, including China, took that if implemented in the United States of America, a country with enormous resources, could have made persuading people to stay home a better option than mandating, um, you know, mm -hmm. certain kind of mandates. People were never mandated to stay in their house, but, um, but, but mandating that they get vaccinated to go into certain kinds of spaces and, and things like that. 
So the second part of the study is also, uh, the second part of our read rather, is interesting because it's a study that an analyzed the effects of school closures. School closures being one of the negative aspects of the shutdowns that had like longer, a longer term negative effect on the education and mental health of children. And so if there hypothetically were shutdowns, but they didn't solve that, they didn't save that many lives, which we can quibble with, mm -hmm. they didn't save that many lives, but also didn't cause that much harm, then I would argue that it's a wash. The, the more significant the harms that the lockdowns caused, the more we have to interrogate whether they were a good idea, right? So this study says there was actually much more of a mixed bag in terms of the mental health outcomes from kids, and that there should be more scrutiny looking into why some kids stayed the same or fared better, whereas other kids fared worse. And it looked at some of the reporting on this and the reporting of parents about their kids' condition. And what they saw were many parents that would say things that were rather conclusory, like, my kid's mental health is worse. But when you ask them to actually analyze what is their depression metric, what is the incidence of them expressing some kind of suicidal ideation, when you actually try to get them to quantify and compare to how they are now versus how they were before the pandemic, they actually what they write down, what they tick in the box, is that there was almost no change and sometimes an improvement. And so it's pushing back at the media framing. Um, it's just accepting parental statements and the statements of some organizations that just say lockdowns were bad for kids when it's just a much more nuanced story than that. Right. I'm, it, I, I'm having um, a little bit, I, I'd have to look more closely at how they you know, reach this conclusion, what exactly populations of children they were surveying, because I know it's the case that um, teen self-reported mental health rates and suicide attempts among girls have been getting worse over time. Before the pandemic, they were already in that trajectory. So there's, I have not seen a single study to suggest an improvement during the pandemic. So maybe the study is suggesting it is continuing to get worse along the exact well, same axis so you would have expected. Suicide incidence is different than generalized right. depression rates. Uh, one of the authors points out that it is really hard to study suicides in children due to frequency. Suicidal thinking is much more common. So we're looking out for it as a symptom of COVID slash post-infection uh, COVID. So they're, they're saying, you know, they are, it's easier to measure people's expression of suicidal thinking given the, I think, the, frankly, rarity right. of actual uh, suicide attempts or people who do, right. you know, actually kill themselves. So, you know, I, 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 this is not, and the authors of the study are very clear. They're not saying this wasn't a problem. Mm -hmm. They're not saying there weren't poor health outcomes for kids. What they're saying is that when you look at populations and you're looking for something other than an overarching message, you see some populations that fared better than others. It's worth understanding why, because they're going to have to have a more nuanced health mm -hmm. intervention the next time this comes around, if it does, in fact, require some kind of shutdowns. Just saying, because there were harms to kids, we should never do something like this going forward is the kind of lack of nuance that could get us in a situation where we have the black plague killing a third of the population, but because we haven't really weighed the pros and cons in a more nuanced way, we're having bad policy well, the, outcomes in the other direction. Well, and also the school lockdown situation for kids was wildly different based on your where you were, yeah. what kind of school you were involved in, what your level of economic well, comfort this, is. This was a Canadian city, I believe. Right. But uh, yeah, certainly 
in the United States, state I mean, so, by state, there were very huge differences. Right. I'm, yeah. Mo, mo, I have, I've said on the show before, I have a million nieces and nephews. They're mostly in private school. Um, they had the exact same educational experience throughout almost the entire, that the, the, they had prior to the pandemic. It, their schools didn't close. Um, people who were affluent, you know, if you could, if we're talking about like improvement, you know, if you pulled your kid out of a okay school and you had a lot of money and put them in a little pod with three other kids and had like, you know, the parents taking turns tutoring them, that it's, it would not be crazy to think that was more individualized attention and education that might have actually been yeah, or an improvement. If, or if your kid were getting bullied at any kind of school and yeah. no longer had to go and then face their bullies, then that yeah. would also be an improvement. But I think you're you're focusing a little bit too much on the idea of it being improvement. I don't think they're making some huge claims yeah. that many kids had mental health improvement. They're saying that in some cases, just like if you just pulled any Random right. group of people, they're going to be happier this year than last year. The other half are going to be right. happier but next the year than this year. I mean, I just pulled just up random. this New York Times article from uh, from February of this year, from May, February this year. Nearly three in five teenage girls felt persistent sadness in 2021, double the rate of boys. One in three girls seriously considered attempting suicide. So there, again, it, it, it was already on this path before the pandemic, but I think we're still trying to grapple with how it was affected by COVID. Yeah, I mean, look, we did just do a segment about how concern about the children is weaponized to try to restrict speech on internet mm -hmm. platforms. And I think that everyone should be cognizant of the fact that kids are also being focused on in the context of mm -hmm. pandemic-related closures to advance an agenda that you may or may not agree with, a policy perspective that you may or may not agree with. But I think that we should be able to make decisions about separate and apart from the heightened emotionality right. that comes with focusing on children in particular. Sure. What I object to it in the former case, though, is they're weaponizing it in order to take freedoms away from the kids and from everyone else. That's why I'm so outraged by it, which in this case, it's not. It's a it's a taking away. It's a it's a the, the people taking away the freedom of going yeah. to school are on the same side. Well, as one, the, one other point is worth noting um, is that there was also a recent uh, study that showed that uh, Boston Children's Hospital researchers found that 70% of households with COVID-19 infections had that infection originate with a mm -hmm. child. So, you know, there are these relative competing freedoms. The lockdown, the, the COVID, the sh school shutdowns didn't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot of conversations about it that say, well, kids aren't dying from this anyway. Why are we doing the shutdowns? Remember, the issue was the children were going to be vectors. So that parents who were home from work that policy is being undermined if they are getting exposure from their kids going into a pool with all the other kids that have been home with all their other parents every day and coming home and bringing it into the household. So for, you know, it's just from a public policy perspective, if you do believe on some level that you had to have these shutdowns or if there were these shutdowns on a professional basis for adults, then not similarly protecting adults, adults by not having the exposure to their kids, and, and also the teachers in the school not having the option to opt out because they're teachers in the school, does create a high risk of infection despite lockdowns in other areas of life. That was the concern. Whether or not you think the benefits of those outweighed the harms, that's an open question that some of these studies are trying to get to. But it wasn't just about the fact that kids are less likely to die, so why are we, why are, why are we uh, shutting down schools? Uh, we got to go. More rising right after this.
A new CNN report alleges an employee at Donald Trump's residence, Mar-a-Lago, drained a pool on the property last fall, flooding the room where computer servers containing surveillance video logs were stored. This happened just a few months after FBI agents raided the property in search of classified documents in the former president's possession. The timing and nature of the incident has some speculating it was done intentionally. That includes federal prosecutors who've asked at least one witness about the flood. Meanwhile, former President Trump furiously tore into the Department of Justice, which is considering whether to indict him for mishandling of classified documents. He took to his Truth Social account yesterday, posting, quote, how can the DOJ possibly charge me who did nothing wrong <laughs> when no other presidents were charged, when Joe Biden won't be charged for anything, including the fact that he had 1,800 150 boxes, much of it classified, and some dating back to his Senate days when even Democrat senators are shocked. <laughs> On Monday, Trump's legal team was seen meeting with prosecutors at the DOJ. Investigators are said to be meeting with a grand jury next week, uh, or just coming up next, not next week necessarily. I, I love that uh, every aspect of these kind of Trump document stories feels like I'm in some kind of 90s Leslie Nielsen mm -hmm. film, like with the hijinks and the... I was getting, uh, this is giving um, a sort of Sopranos mob, like you hire a pool <laughs> attendant who's like, like, a, like, a, like a mafia goon. He's like, ah, I was, I was uh, refilling the pool. We, we wet some computers. They don't work no more. <laughs> you, you can do that, actually. And Ronnie, <laughs> that's your, okay, your, your lane. You. Thank you. No, like, look, I, who knows if this is true? We live in such an absurd world that I wouldn't, wouldn't put it yeah. past him. I wouldn't put it past anybody. Now, to the, the, the bigger, more important question, which is, you know, is Donald Trump right that he is being signaled out here when so many people, including the president, including the former vice president, Mike Pence, also had these document retention issues? Right. And, yes. the, and the the pushback <laughs> is that Donald Trump actively did obstruct evidence insofar mm -hmm. as that he declined to turn over the documents in his possession. And now there is this recording of him that we reported on last week where he expresses knowledge of having documents that he knows should not be in his mm -hmm. possession, undermining the idea that he thought that he had just unclassified right. them Right. Through executive fiat. Right. The deep state's plans to attack uh, Iran should be a closely guarded state <laughs> secret, not something accessible to people, I guess. Is sure. The, is yeah. But I mean, look. So theory here. I, I totally agree that the substance yeah. of, of, of the non-disclosure was a much more big, a much bigger story. Still nobody's than, talking about it. Just us. It. And, I, and I get Just you, Bobby. Us. I think you're I think you're right yeah. about that. However, it is also the case that there is a stronger case against him for actively like uh, fulfilling yeah. the elements of obstruction of justice because he knew he didn't wasn't supposed to have these documents and didn't give them over. We don't know. Like if we later discover that Joe Biden also intentionally kept documents and then just, you know, failed to disclose them and mm -hmm. tried to prevent, uh, tried to um, block returning them when the request was made, then he should also be brought up on these same okay, charges. Yeah. Absolutely. I You're agree. right. I, I, the different. Yeah. Trump clearly knew he had documents and they asked for him back and he was like, no. <laughs> and Joe Biden didn't know he had the documents, but he did and then politely gave them back. That's the difference and that's why this is moving forward. I still think this is not a significant, yes, you can technically go after him because 
the rules are complicated with respect to the documents and everything is routinely classified and he probably made a grocery list once that he held on to and probably that's classified and he was supposed to hand that over to the Library of Congress or whoever and they said give me that grocery list and he said <laughs> no and now we're where we are I just don't I, I again I think sometimes we have to judge these things not in terms of whether it's technically a violation of the law, because everything is technically a violation of the law. Our That's criminal true. code is vast, and you can always, like, you know, police can follow you while you're driving for, for 20 minutes and will always have an excuse to pull you over 100%. if they want. Something that affects uh, a lot of uh, underprivileged people, a lot of people of color, et cetera. 100%. Not, you know, this is not like about getting Trump off the hook. He is careless and he brings this on himself many times. How, but, the bi but the bigger issue to me here, is that it's just, it's not a significant, um, to me, the, the more significant yeah. aspect of the, the, the thing I would like to change is the routine secrecy that our federal government, that the permanent bureaucracy uses to shield themselves from criticism, that there are policy decisions being made behind closed doors that the American people ought to have a say and they ought to have more knowledge in because the American people do not agree with the foreign policy of the elites and of the permanent government. Yeah. And they want, they want a vastly... American people in both political parties want a vastly different role for America on the world stage when we're talking about defense and security and all that sorts of things yeah. going on. So I, I don't want this, um, th this feels like a little bit of a sideshow and a little yeah, bit of a Yeah, this is me. the thing that ends up precluding Donald Trump from running for president or being yeah. elected and things like that. It will be experienced right. as a trivial a relatively trivial complaint that was weaponized to undermine the democratic process, and I don't know if that's the record that Democrats want under their belt. Now, it might be worth uh, noting what the specific um, charges here, potential sentence might be for Donald Trump if this were to be pursued. The potential charge is uh, unauthorized retention of national security documents. Mm -hmm. um, it is a section of the Espionage Act. Prosecutors would have to show that Mr. Trump knew he was still in possession of the documents after leaving the White House and, and failed to comply when the government asked him to return them and then subpoenaed them. The theoretical penalty is up to 10 years per such document, up to. It doesn't have to be, but up to. The prosecutors would also have to show that the documents related to the national defense and that they were closely held and that their disclosure could harm the United States or aid a foreign adversary. And this is why Donald Trump is in more trouble than the others. Yeah, look, again, um, Trump, <laughs> Trump is bad at a lot of this stuff in terms of, like, operating in a more squeaky clean way. And... I, I think it would be smart for Republican primary voters to keep this in mind as they pick the next Republican candidate, because even if it's unfair and even if it's biased and even if it's weaponized, don't you want someone who's like less likely to walk into this trap? So not Mike Pence. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had documents, too. He did have documents, too, although but he, he complied. Back, so he's not. Uh, yeah, But I maybe I mean, I don't know. Th that's what Trump's supporters like about him that mm -hmm. he just says, no, I'm not going to give him back. I don't think that's necessarily very constructive. Like, let's fight the state in really con in, in constructive ways, mm -hmm. principled battles. It's never really principled battles with Trump. It's like, well, this personally inconvenienced and annoyed me, and I'm mad about Can it. Can I drain and the I, pool to cover and, <laughs> and I demand <laughs> you all back me up. Yeah. And it, he forces everyone on the right to defend him in this sort of cult of personality, and they all go along with it. And I, I don't think that's been 
healthy for the trajectory of the Republican Party. So I, I can think all of that while at the same time thinking that like this is not this is not particular seriousness. And there's something almost um, darkly funny to me about how serious the talking heads on all the other cable channels are are treating this. With, with like, like it's, it's just not, it's it's, just it's, not that big a deal. I don't camp. know what they all have documents. <laughs> they all have yeah. them because everything is classified. Yeah. The, the Republican Party has this kind of war on trans rainbow stuff going on right now, mm -hmm. and Donald Trump is standing strong as the most campy <laughs> man <laughs> in all of the United States of America. It's a great battle. Mm. We're gonna continue to Guess watch it. We can't it. go swimming in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. We're <laughs> rising after this. Brazen UK investigative journalist Kit Clarenberg was detained and interrogated by British police when he arrived at London's Luton Airport on May 17th. Six officers brought him to a back room where they questioned him for hours about his reporting for the Grey Zone and his opinions on a variety of issues, such as Britain's leadership and the war in Ukraine. Kit joins us now to elaborate on what happened to him. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? I, we're doing all right. Please tell us more about what happened to you and how you came to realize that you were being detained because of your reporting and your political views. Well, sure. So the second the train, uh, sorry, the plane touched down in Luton, um, the pilot said over the tannoy, everyone have your passports ready. Um, in my naivety, I thought that the airport might have been uh, restructured since I was last there several years ago. Uh, but no, there were six uh, plainclothes counter-terror officers waiting specifically for me on the tarmac, um, or as good as. Um, and yes, the second they saw my, my name on my passport, I was ordered to go, go with them. I was taken to a back room. Um, I was told I was being detained under the 2019 Prevention of, um, of, of Terror Act, um, Schedule 3. I think this might be the very first time this has been used against a schedule three has been used against a journalist. These are sweeping counter terror powers, which make it um, a criminal offense, um, uh, an arrestable offense for you to not answer their questions or refuse to comply with requests to hand over passwords or um, patterns for uh, accessing digital devices. Um, so, and then I was grilled for uh, five hours. Um, all the while, my electronic devices were out of sight, as were my bank cards, as were my, as were my SIM cards. Um, quite what was done with all of them, I don't know. Um, they remain in possession of um, some of my property to this day. Wow. So they still, they didn't give you back um, all of your stuff. Tell us more about what questions uh, you can recall them asking you. This is just outrageous uh, conduct, by oh, the way. <laughs> Sure. Like, I mean, it, it was wide ranging. There were very specific questions um, related to my personal and indeed the relationship of the grey zone um, to uh, Russian intelligence. Um, I was trying not to laugh at points, but but it was not, you know, at all funny. You know, when you were stuck in a windowless room with two two individuals whose names I could, I, I, I could never learn. I, I learned their code names at one point. They seemed to forget each other's um, ciphers, which was uh, quite, quite, quite remarkable. But yes, um, they asked me about my political opinions, how it was I got into to, um, uh, na national security reporting. Um, I, I had to give them a potted um, employment history, but there were all sorts of very invasive questions, such as you know, my address in Serbia, where I, um, my adopted home country, where I live, how much I pay in rent, whether my energy bills are included in my rent, my bank account details, where money I am paid by the grey zone is, pay is paid to, how much, how often. Um, and then, yes, uh, the, I mean, in terms of specific stories, they seem to focus, have a rather intense of interest in my um, recent expose of how the CIA may well have had a covert relationship with two of the 9-11 hijackers. 
hijackers and this led into a wider discussion about 9-11 conspiracy theories and one of the officers in question seems to indicate an, a, uh, an at least um, you know, tacit acceptance of the fact that it was likely they might be, they might have been acting as agents um, for the CIA, which was quite remarkable. But I mean, yes, I mean, it was wide ranging. It went on forever. Um, you know, my, my political views and my involvement in political activism. Do I know any um, uh, political activists? What, what are my opinions on the British government? What are my opinions on the Russian government? So, can the worst I'll say ever. <laughs> Yeah, this was so extreme that, in fact, at first, the UK's National Union of Journalists came out and expressed concern and some support for you over your detention, um, saying the detention of Kate Clarenberg in line of questioning pursued by officers is of huge concern to the NUJ. However, they subsequently walked back that support, deleted the tweet. Um, what, what do you make of this? Were you surprised in the first instance of getting any support from a national journalistic organization in the first place? And then what, what do you understand happened with the walking back of that support? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was very surprised at first because, you know, the NUJ has a history of throwing journalists under the bus um, if they're not the right kind of journalists. People like uh, Julian Assange and former British Ambassador Craig Murray, um, both uh, individuals who've been harassed extensively by authorities for, for blowing the whistle and exposing the truth. Um, the NUJ hasn't been there for them when they asked and when they needed it. Um, I was quite surprised when the NUJ um, issued that statement. I thought that it was um, you know, quite significant in, in terms of the tone um, and highly common their natory. Um, when it was when it was uh, retracted, like twenty four hours later, um, I was pretty mortified. Um, and uh, you know, there was I. I it was only um, uh, after it was removed that I learned there had been a huge online campaign by my you know assortment of people that I pissed off over the years, which is a pretty long list, who were attacking the NUJ publicly for doing this. I mean, that's kind of to be expected. And you know, I, I can I, I've got a thick skin and I can ignore bad faith, dishonest attacks on me and my journalism. But I think that what's really frightening, the thing that does that does disturb me, is the fact that there has been a long running attempt to uh, discredit and um, diminish Julian Assange as a journalist. You know, the, the, the authorities tried to frame him instead as a hacker or a spy or a Russian asset, um, uh, you know, not a journalist, which means that he's not entitled to the same protections and indeed sympathy um, as a journalist would be. Now, um, that is the kind of tone that I'm seeing from people who are attacking me online, that I'm not a journalist. And, you know, I mean, is the next step to me, Belmarsh? I really hope not. Um, but, you know, you, you never know. I mean, the, in, in the, the current information environment, I've never seen it so hostile in my lifetime. Um, you know, people are losing their jobs or are being suppressed on social media and, and even worse across the West for expressing the wrong opinions, which, of course, has a wider chilling effect. Um, you know, I and indeed the Grey Zone, we refuse to be bullied, bullied and intimidated. Mm. Um, but there, there are other, other ways of shutting us up. Hmm. Have you had any further interactions with um, law enforcement um, since the incident at the airport? No, I, I received an email from them saying that they were going to be holding one of my memory cards, which is about five years old and is, to my mind, primarily uh, com uh, contained um, music I downloaded over the years to listen to on my phone. I'm quite what they've unearthed or what, but I, I'm not sure. But they said they were they were going to hold it because they felt it may be necessary to future criminal proceedings. Um, again, I'm not sure what that's a reference to, although I was you know, mercifully able to leave the country without hindrance or harassment. Um, I don't think I'll be returning there for quite some 
on time unless, you know, um, uh, unless I have no legal choice but to. But yes, it's, um, it, it, there is a lack of clarity there as well. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how long we're going to be holding my stuff, um, whether indeed it will you know, lead to criminal charges. I have emailed them asking but have received no word from them. Do you have any idea what the nature of the threatened criminal charges would be? I'm not sure. I mean, this, as I say, we're living in a very, very hostile um, informational environment where um, uh, you know, every Western backer of the proxy war has a significant vested interest in controlling the narrative and preventing certain damaging facts from emerging. Um, the grey zone has taken the lead on exposing the reality of what's happening in Ukraine and why. Um, we have been subject to relentless, ruthless online attacks um, you know, as, as a result and all sorts of rubbish about us being um, you know, Russian propagandists or funded or working for um, the Kremlin. Um, you know, this is what cropped up in my interview. It's all completely ludicrous. Um, but the, um, it, 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 it does seem that increasingly it's becoming a crime to question a mainstream narratives on Ukraine. I mean, there is a, a, a British vlogger called Graham Phillips, who um, I think that he did the wrong thing and I couldn't dis uh, disagree with him more politically. But he traveled to eastern Ukraine at the start of this war and interviewed uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war on camera. Now, this is potentially a breach of Geneva, Geneva Conventions. Um, he, the British government responded by seizing all of his assets, seizing his home, um, and uh, closing down all of, the, all of his bank accounts, and yes, taking all his money. Now, again, I, I disagree strongly with what he did, but the British government did that. It's the first time any government in, in the world has ever sanctioned one of their own citizens. And even more, even more shockingly, they did so despite knowing in internal communications that it was completely illegal, and there was no basis for them doing this. So, I mean, I'm not sure what laws I might I, I might have broken. Um, perhaps they are trying to work that out themselves now and see if they can pin something on me mm. um, for our reporting on the war in Ukraine. Mm. The government harassing a journalist, you might expect that to prompt some media coverage. I was just Googling, and I don't see much of anything. Uh, anyone commenting on the situation coming to your defense? It's uh, really troubling and really... Um, just scary uh, situation you've encountered. Um, please keep us in the loop. Update us uh, if you hear more from law enforcement about these potential criminal uh, charges. Thank you so much for joining Rising today. Cheers, guys. God bless you. Thanks for having me on. Decision Desk HQ poll released today finds that 49% of registered voters indicated they would consider voting for a third-party candidate in 2024, with 23% saying they were very likely and 26% somewhat likely. Ooh, among the selection of third-party candidates included, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders received the highest level of support at 21%. Former Representative Liz Cheney received 10% and 43% said someone else that wasn't listed. Another interesting finding from the poll, 70% of people think the United States is on the wrong track. Definitely seems like there's a correlation between that belief and the interest in third parties. Bernie Sanders obviously has said he has no interest in running again through his early support behind Joe Biden. Yeah. Liz Cheney, I suspect... Um. Uh, she <laughs> could uh, she could run as an independent, I guess, third party. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, has she said that she is interested in doing that? I mean, she would have absolutely no chance in the Republican primaries, obviously. It would just be as a protest. And, and even there, there are kind of already people doing that, right, including Mike Pence to some degree, probably not to the degree Liz Cheney is. 
But um, yeah, I, I don't know if she's interested in running third party. I don't know what. Again, it, there's, I'm not sure there's a party that would want to acquire her. The third parties are the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, and then uh, you know others of various um, size. Uh, Libertarian Party is my party. I have a lot of affection for them. Um, it's not clear who will be um, our nominee this time around. Uh, last time it was a lovely woman named Joe Jorgensen. And before that, it was a more notable uh, political figure, somewhat more notable, and he actually held office, Governor Gary Johnson, former governor of uh, New Mexico. Um, although he did, uh, he disappointed a lot of libertarians, I think, with some of his, his positions were actually a, a little just kind of regular liberal, honestly. I, I think what not, is Aleppo? There was, there was, there was that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not saying that he's yeah. reduced to that one moment. But um, that, that was the I know. It was a, such a moment. shame that moment went so viral. Because um, the question was kind of sprung on him in a, in a very, like, it was, there was, it was a context-free, what about Aleppo? Sure. Without any, like, you know, turning to Syria now, sure. what about the situation in Aleppo? Sure. Well, look, this is really anyway. fascinating to me for many <laughs> reasons. One, obviously, Cornel West just announced that he's running with the People's Party. Um, you right, know, as a as a as a third party candidate. Now, there's been a lot of discussion on the left about the merits of doing so, since the People's Party has had issues with its founder and some allegations and some, some oh, questions that? about whether or not that sounds there's juicy. some kind Tell of me me, me too style allegations against the founder oh. Nick Brana. There have been allegations of basically misuse of funds. A lot of people donated to the People's Party, especially after 2020, because they were so frustrated with how the Bernie campaign ended, and they wanted to do a break from the Democratic Party and really invest in getting ballot access and setting up a third party uh, candidate for real success outside of the Democratic Party, which has admitted in court that it feels no need to be fair and that it can actually pick its own candidates behind closed doors. That being said, they have done very little in terms of actually securing ballot access. And so many people think that a run on the People's Party line is futile, uh, unless you're expecting people to do basically a write-in campaign, because they won't actually be on the ballot in almost any state. Now. That being said, I actually conducted an interview that will be coming out Thursday on Bad Faith Podcast with a ballot access expert. There is a Harvard Law Journal article that came out recently that argued that it was almost impossible for Donald Trump, it was focused on Donald Trump specifically, to choose to run in the general election as an independent after having run a loss in a primary. And the article and the people who asked those publishers to come and interview with them seem to be invested in assuring the public that mm -hmm. Donald Trump, if you defeat him in the primary, he's out for good. This person quibbles with the analysis in that article, says that if you actually look at the precedent, including a precedent established by Gary Johnson, that very few of the so-called sore loser laws that preclude someone who runs in a presidential primary from running in a general election have ever been applied in a federal electoral context. So they tend to be for state-level races, and they're written in that way, because for obvious reasons, you can't write a law that says you can't run, let's say, you can't say Joe Biden can't run on the ticket in the general election in South Carolina if he lost South Carolina in the primary. Obviously, Democrats are going to lose a lot of red states in the primary and still win the, sorry, and still in their primary, sure, 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 but sure, they're sure. not like a, a general sure. election context battlegrounds for them. No one expects, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, you I, have I to it. allow them to go ahead and run. And so when you look at all of the states that actually have um, sore loser laws that have been applied or any other laws that would preclude people from running, it would be a little tougher for Republicans because some, there's some big states with a lot of electoral votes like Texas that do have sore loser laws that have been applied. But for a left-leaning candidate, a kind of Democrat-leaning candidate, 
all of the states that Democrats, the, the left broadly, needs to win to get the number of electoral votes that are necessary, it's an open field. Mm. So this person thinks there's a very strong chance that someone who either did a dirty break strategy or and or just ran as an independent would have a pretty good shot, which validates the strategy of like a Marion Williamson or RFK mm -hmm. Jr. saying I'm gonna run and then break, or potentially someone right. like a, um, uh, a Cornell West style candidate, who I think is getting a lot of support because people like the fact that he's not even trying to run within the cover of the Democratic Party and is perhaps better positioned to be more oppositional to the corporate parties as a whole. You, uh, you have some friendship with Marianne, so you know maybe some of her thinking. Uh, it doesn't seem to me like she has any intention to pursue an independent bid if she is defeated in the Democratic that, nomination. That but question maybe has been very controversial. She yeah. gave an interview on a uh, channel called The Vanguard where they asked her that. And she said, it depends on how you treat me, something mm -hmm. that's very similar to what Donald Trump has said, which is, if this is a fair primary process, who knows what's going to happen? Some leftists say that that was a dodge and that she has no intention to do a dirty break strategy. Others say, obviously, she can't announce it so explicitly because it will make the Democratic Party feel empowered to exclude her from you know debates and whatever other opportunities there may uh, be available to her running within the Democratic Party in the first place, and it will undermine her decision to even run as a Democrat at all. Why would she, you know, cut herself off of the knees? So it, that's, that's up the for debate. The interesting case would be RFK Jr. running as a third party, given that with some of his political positions, he obviously is drawing some support from the right, from Trump people, from independent-minded people. Uh, you know, he just did a Twitter space with Elon Musk, where he is clearly popular. So some of his audience is overlapping with those kinds of mm -hmm. right-leaning um, Twitter people who care a lot about censorship and our anti-interventionist foreign policy and COVID, of course, uh, a three-way race between RFK Jr. as an independent versus Biden versus Trump would be interesting, yes. uh, would be something akin maybe to the Ross Perot mm. um, uh, election with, uh, with uh, Clinton and, and Bush back in, what, 92, I think? Mm -hmm. Uh, where uh, where you did have uh, the last time there was a significant vote for a third party, a third party candidate who did draw support f from both directions and fundamentally changed the dynamics in that race. Yeah, and look, sometimes the uh, the the goal here isn't to win necessarily. Some people, like Ralph Nader, said, "Look, I'm going to run. I have a list of concerns." Do five out of the 10 of these things on this list, two out of the 20 things on this list, and I'll drop out of the race. He took that position to Al Gore, and Al Gore said, no, I'm good, and then he lost. So some people say, I'm going to run as a third-party candidate at, with a, as an intentional spoiler candidate to have leverage to try to force these two corporate parties to do something for the people. Either listen to me, or you're going to risk losing the election. And the Democratic Party, at least, has proven over and over again that it would rather lose an election, nominate Hillary Clinton and being deeply unpopular as she was, not listen to Ralph Nader's populist, reasonable list mm -hmm. of options that they could have just taken up as part of the agenda, and instead throw the election to the other side. And we'll see if there's you know, a different outcome, if it's more of a conservative-leading candidate. You know, is the Republican Party more flexible to these sorts of things? Who knows? But there is an enormous appetite here, and there are a number of candidates in the race who have shown a willingness to be more adversarial to the Democratic Party than even Bernie Sanders has been. Mm. More rising right after this. A military whistleblower has made a new claim about 
a United States UFO retrieval program? Air Force veteran and former member of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, David Grush, says that extraterrestrial craft have been recovered and kept secret by the United States. Let's hear a bit more of what Grush had to say in an interview with News Nation. Uh, the UAP task force was refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft if you will, non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You are one of the most trusted former intelligence officials in the U.S. defense and intelligence establishment. Yes, I was. Grush said that senior intelligence officers told him, quote, based on their oral testimony, and they've provided me documents and other proof, that there was, in fact, a program that the UAP task force was not read into. Crush said he himself has not seen photos of the alleged craft, but has spoken, quote, extensively with other intelligence officials who have, News Nation reports. Grush also commented on the role of disinformation in all this. Let's watch. If you're right, if you're telling us the truth, mm -hmm. everyone, the entire American public, has been lied to for decades. Yeah, there's a sophisticated... Uh, disinformation campaign targeting the U.S. populace, which is extremely unethical and immoral. You are saying to the human race, for the first time, an official intelligence representative at a high level from the U.S. government is saying publicly, we are not alone. We're definitely not alone. Are we alone, Robbie? <laughs> I'm going to break your heart in the... <laughs> hearts of many of our viewers and say that yes we are look i i'm just i'm not, not persuaded by this stuff Why it's not? a lot of uh it's a lot of dramatic claims that just don't add up I, I fully believe the u.s government is in possession of technology crafts um unidentified flying objects doesn't necessarily mean aliens it could be technology from other countries could even be from other agencies within our own government things that don't make sense to the pilots who saw them that are that are have been kept Secret, that I accept, and that there's not been enough transparency on all of this, and the government has tech it doesn't want you to know about it. all that, fine. But it's not, it's not non non human alien. It's it not. So hard Why do they always crash in the American Southwest near a military because base? America Nobody is number one, Robbie. <laughs> they never crash in Midtown Manhattan where they're like. Okay, hear me out. Here's here's there's an a, there's a spy Chinese spy balloon crossing the country. Everybody saw it. Everybody took pictures of it. Okay. Why that never happens for the so alien here's craft. here's one explanation. As a sci-fi nerd, I'm going to bring my expertise yeah. to this okay. problem. Okay. In one of the best Star Trek movies of all time, First Contact, starring Alfie Woodard and Patrick Stewart, you go back in time to the first contact that humans make with aliens. It with is the with the Vulcans. Yes. The reason why in the Star Trek the universe... Direct, the prime directive. These, alien, these aliens have not come made contact with Earth. It's because we're too primitive a species. However, when Zephyrin Cochran, the inventor of the warp engine, makes his first warp speed flight, the Vulcans are like, hey, something's going down on the, on, there on Earth. So they come down to the location of where the ship launched. That is why they came to Earth. Now, maybe there's something going on out West in Nevada or Roswell, whatever is happening out there that has caused aliens to seek out 
that technology and to make contact at that point. That's the argument. The argument is an interesting <laughs> argument that I do not buy at all. Look, I, maybe the universe is a very big place, and it is, of course, possible. And I know you were arguing with me before we started that it's statistically, it has to be statistically. Of course, there's so, life in right, the universe. There's seaweed. There's there's uh, plankton. There's something somewhere out there. Intelligent. Intergalactic space traveling life? I don't think so. Um, there are many theories for why that could be the, gr the great filter. There's uh, arguments put forth by science fiction people that um, civilizations destroy themselves yes. or burn out or go or you know, they have a natural endpoint that occurs well beyond warp speed technology, if that's even possible. Yes. Um, that's fine. Yes and yes. Um, so we're. Let's give it time. We might as well be alone. Okay, well, we might as well be alone versus what I was arguing that statistically, given the scope and size of space, the kind of chron chronological problems that you describe where we're so far away from civilizations and the universe is so old that many could have come and gone without us being able to connect in that way. All of those are legitimate problems. I am not personally skeptical of the idea of intelligent life, of highly intelligent life, or even highly intelligent space-faring life. I think the question of whether or not we should credit this particular report is a different one. Now, people are looking at this less skeptically than other kinds of reports because Grouch has these bona fides that, as uh, the New York Magazine reports, are worth taking seriously. They say Grouch is a 36-year-old combat veteran of Afghanistan who was a member of the uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, a thing I didn't know existed, uh, a pro program run by the Office of Na Naval Intelligence to investigate UFO sightings tax dollars at work. From 2019 to 2021, he served on the task force as the representative of the National Reconnaissance Office, considered one of the big five of the U.S. intelligence agencies. His colleagues think highly of him, too. I, this, is, this is not someone who— We are so lucky these crashes keep uh, taking place in sparsely populated areas of the U.S. where it's easier for the government to, to cover them up. That's, uh, that's real convenient. Um, yeah, first, first totally all, believable. It does not necessarily crash. It could be, as I've laid out, it's, it's a there. landing strip. They're going to America's big welcome home beacon in the desert. Well, then they're <laughs> so they're waiting. They're just kind of chilling out, eating cheeseburgers. They're like, okay, humans are 162 years from warp speed technology, and we're going to make our presence known. Yeah, we're like going to lightly yeah. influence. This is also a thing that happens on Star Trek. Sometimes they have disguised observational stations on primitive, primitive planets to do archaeological studies. Mm -hmm. um, also, we can leave Star Trek and go to another excellent 90s show, Alien Nation, where the premise was that there was a whole, it was like a loose parody, well, a heavy-handed analogy for like integration because these aliens have to basically refugee themselves on Earth and how are you going to integrate them? And it was a buddy cop show with an alien cop and a human cop and they're patrolling the streets know, of New York or But like there was this other nefarious alien force that could, you know, take human form and then this was a problem. You have no idea. It could be like the arrival where there's also aliens in human form that are running under the cover and the government knows about it and they're causing global warming because they need the planet to be hotter so they can live and survive. The point is but if the human imagination can accommodate all of these potentialities in creative science fiction, 
then who knows what's happening in the American Southwest. I think you're blowing me away on the nerd race for today. I feel very embarrassed. I, I should disclose that I played Dungeons and Dragons last night. It was a time traveling episode. Everybody loved it. I am the nerd on this show, not yeah, Brianna. Well, I'm the one that came in my uh, specialized Romulan outfit today. Is, is, that, is, that, is that a Romulan dress? I don't know. It's just vaguely reminiscent. You tell, you tell me Trekkies in the audience. We need, our, we need our Romulan ears, right? right? Yes, we do. All right, let Live us know what you think. and prosper. <laughs> See you see you next up <laughs> after this. <laughs>Gop presidential candidate Nikki Haley is leaning heavily into the debate over transgender athletes in sports. Here she is Sunday speaking at a town hall in Iowa. We want to start with biological boys playing in girls' sports. That's one thing. The fact that we have gender pronoun classes in the military now. I mean, all of these things that are pushing what a small minority want on the majority of Americans, it's too much. It's too much. I mean, the idea that we have biological boys playing in girls' sports, it is the women's issue of our time. My daughter ran track in high school. I don't even know how I would have that conversation with her. How are we supposed to get our girls used to the fact that biological boys are in their locker rooms? And then we wonder why a third of our teenage girls seriously contemplated suicide last year? We should be growing strong girls, confident girls. Haley's comment drew the ire of the trans community. Activist and journalist Aaron Reed denounced the former senator's comments, writing, quote, not only is this a horrific argument that trans girls are driving cis girls to suicide, but I also recall watching debates in 18 state legislatures where Republicans did not care about suicide. One Republican even said she wouldn't do anything to save her suicidal daughter. Meanwhile, down in Florida, a judge blocked enforcement of the state's ban on gender-affirming care for adults and children, calling it an exercise in politics, not in good medicine. I also wanted to mention this poll that came out, published by PBS NewsHour, that asked Americans, do you support or oppose legislation that would prohibit gender transition-related medical care for minors? Now, interestingly, among national, uh, uh, all the national adults, 66 opposed legislation that would prohibit gender-affirming care, 28% supported it. But what was so fascinating about this poll is when you broke out Democrats, Republicans, and independents, the numbers didn't change very much. Democrats, 69% opposed. Republicans, 70% opposed. Independents, 64% opposed. But this really wasn't an ideological issue. So the question is, is Nikki Haley and others like Ron DeSantis who are really leaning into this particular line of attack? Ron DeSantis making this kind of woke fight the entitled, the entire linchpin of his campaign. Is this going to be the galvanizing political issue that helps them in an electoral contest? I mean, test? I agree with you on the banning. I don't support the banning of care, and I think it's possible for conservatives to overreach on this. But uh, on the on what Nikki Haley was talking about there, I mean, it's, I'm looking at a poll. 57% of American adults believe gender is based on sex assigned at birth. 53% um, say that gender is based on sex. 63% of adults believe gender is based on. Uh, sorry, 63% believe it's assigned at birth. Um, a supermajority of Americans don't want biological males competing in women's sports. I, I don't think. Do I think it's having an effect on suicide rates? No, she probably shouldn't have brought that. I mean, that's that, a big, but... let's stay with that for a second. That's okay. a huge claim. Yeah, she that, says, that is not She a... says there's a suicide problem with girls. Mm -hmm. 
that somehow it makes sense. Like, how can we be surprised that so many girls want to commit suicide when there are trans girls who want to be in locker rooms? How many trans athletes are there in the entire country? Yeah, I, I think that claim, again, is not accurate, but um, I, <laughs> I don't doubt that there have been cases where women feel uncomfortable because of the because of situations locker. I mean, and we're going to blame that on the well, suicide rates of cis girls across the country. Okay, That's no, a significant but, well, but I, claim. Fair enough, which I agree is not accurate. But I have also, I mean, I've seen claims. The suicide argument is used all the time by activists on transgender issues. On their side, they say that they'll talk about how everything, how language we use, not using the right pronouns, is driving trans people to suicide and and trans deaths and all that kind of thing. So it is, it is, it is has been used as a tactic wait, on their side. Do you think it's the same thing to say people being bullying or mean or non-affirming to trans girls mm -hmm. affects their mental health? I think that's the same as saying. There's a there's a handful, you know, a few hundred well, or a few thousand of trans girls. If you the girls. mental health of people who have to compete against biological males right, in the but, locker but room, I would is, have agreed. But this is the right. But she didn't say that. Well, she didn't right, say. But the, the trans people don't. Trans people, uh, not not trans activists on transgender issues have uh, also thrown the suicide. No, they they're arguing that words and actions directed at trans people that are negative or that are bigoted, however you want to characterize it, mm -hmm. affects their mental health. But me saying, Robbie, I'm going to bully you. Robbie, I, you know, mm -hmm. hate your tie, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a different thing, I would argue. If you say that's affecting your mental health, but there's a connection, there's a correlation between my words but and, that's, and your statement. But that's not saying it's affecting statement. their mental health. And if Nikki Haley had just said it's affecting their mental health, that would be a substantial Right, but Nikki statement. Haley, this is, this is the story. The whole story is that right. Nikki Haley, Haley isn't I'm complaining about- you're making about, a comparison that you just came up with, but it's actually the exact same thing being said. No, I, let me finish the analogy. Okay. You're saying the trans activists are doing this, are saying, are saying, it's mean when Brianna says, I don't like your tie, and that's mm -hmm. causing me a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. And you can argue that that's overblown and that no one should be that sensitive about their tie, but that's the accusation that trans activists are making. What Nikki Haley is saying is that there's a trans, trans boy trying to use a high school locker room somewhere in America, mm -hmm. and that is making Robbie Suave feel suicidal. I mean, no, she's saying it's making the people in that locker no, she's room not. situation. No, she's not. She took the entire category of women, of girls in the United States who are suicidal and the broad trend of increased suicide rates and connected that to a very small number of trans yeah, I, female I athletes think, that are in. As I said, I don't think locker rooms. suicide trends have been broadly affected by it. I do think it is an issue that people, that Americans care about where attitudes are not particularly divided. Um, also, like, locker rooms are an uncomfortable situation for, like, tons of young people. Even take yes. the trans issue out of the question. We should be for providing—is it, it, is it an arena for harassment and bullying of people of, of all genders? We should—like, this should be very— not controversial to say that more there should be more safeguards put in place so that young people can have more privacy and feel more comfortable in 
locker rooms and bathrooms and facilities. Um, I, I think that that's a non-controversial issue. The, like the, what? Why? I, I I was I was one of those who towel changed. And nobody ever saw a yeah. peek of me in my eyes. No, no, no. We don't have full equality until until um, teen girls are forced to disrobe and be naked but, but in front so of trans cringe, people. Robbie. That's nonsense. This, this is the point. Like Nikki Haley. First of all, I think she just doesn't sell it. She doesn't talk about it with any kind anything that like speaks to real mm. conviction. But the idea. Is She's standing on stage, spending, dedicating all of this time to kind of creepily and fetishistically going on and on about what, what children are doing in changing rooms. It is an interesting choice for anyone to make, especially someone like Nikki Haley, who seemed to be, at one point be positioning herself as kind of more like a reasonable but normal I, I, conservative person. Well, I, I think bringing, again, bringing suicide into it was very wrong. I don't, other than that, I don't think the point was unreasonable. I don't think most people think the point was unreasonable. Well, au contraire. I think the, the poll that I read earlier indicates quite the opposite. So she made, you know, she and uh, you know, people like Rhonda Sanders continue to make points On about gender-affirming care. care. But this is about... Uh, sports teams and locker rooms accommodations, where it, that's that's very different from the legislation you're talking about. Right. And she supports, and Ron DeSantis supports the legislation that I'm talking right. about. So the question but is that's whether... that's not what you said. Why is she bringing that? That's not what she brought up there. She was talking about the locker room. No, she the, brought up a whole host of things in, in that and has uh, specifically also brought up the medical care for kids as well. So that that is... All of those things are on the table for these people. And so the question is, even if you didn't align with this study, even if you were the percentage of people who don't support even the legislation, who would ban, uh, sorry, would ban gender-affirming care for kids, is this something that you want to be the focus of a presidential campaign, the political focus? Is inflation still an issue? Are you still having issues with your housing costs? What is the Republican plan to address health care costs? What is the, is, are, is Nikki Haley or any other Republican actually going to commit to cutting military funding? Or Democrat, by the way, but we're talking about the Republican uh, candidates right now. This is the question, and I think why so many Americans, per our earlier segment, are racing away from both political parties, because they're having these co siloed conversations that have nothing to do with what anybody actually wants politicians to do. They want them to get out of their families, get out of their lives, stop trying to raise their children for them, stop trying to censor the internet on the basis of their children need the internet censored, and to get back to the work of governing and trying to make the economy better and the lives of everyday Americans economically richer. Well, sure. And I can find the culture war, the culture war can get distracting, um, or the everybody complaining about everything having to do with wokeness, but I mean, what, what happens in your kid's school is something that matters to a lot of Americans, regardless of political affiliation. And the, I, I don't think this is quite the, oh, this is not an issue that people care about, or this is really trivial or something, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Tomorrow on Rising. I, we, we, we've been talking for so long, I didn't even know that was our last segment. Doesn't it feel like we did like 18 segments today? Yeah, we're rocking and rolling today. We're rocking and rolling. Uh, well, tomorrow we'll be very excited to be joined by Tara Reid on this show. You won't want to miss that. Tara Reid, uh, of course, someone who accused uh, Joe Biden of sexual misconduct. And uh, the news with her recently was that uh, she has moved and uh, relocated to Russia. We talked about that on the show and how the mainstream media responded to that. Uh, we'll be able to talk to her her on the show tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.